it is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. everybody welcome to the show welcome to the show uh i got a i got a big one for you um it's been wearing me down dog it has been wearing me down to uh try to keep up with everything that's going on in russia and ukraine i've done so many like breaking news segments um on top of the normal show and it there i mean it appears like there's no sign of slowing down But again, play the world's smallest violin for me because I'm just a dude talking about it, whereas there are people who are in the firing line. So I'd much rather be exhausted than hiding from mortar shellings. Okay, so a lot of stuff to get to. Um, We're going to talk about, I'm going to, the show is very, I don't know the right word for it. I've taken the Ukraine-Russia stories and sprinkled them in throughout the show. It's not just like one, one really long 45-minute block on all the different stuff. Um, We're going to talk about a new polling, some new polling that came out on this issue of the American people, tell you what they think. We have Biden's approval rating. A new approval rating came out after the State of the Union. You might be a little surprised to see where he's at. Uh, We have Jon Stewart, Jon Stewart in the news for, I would say, a a big reason. I would say this is a big deal. I'll bite my tongue on it now. We have um, Fox News simping for Russian oligarchs. 
MSNBC simping for nuclear war, um, Lindsey Graham making a fool of himself, the Saudi ruler MBS uh, went full O.J. Simpson, so we have all that and much more. All right, without further ado, let's get started, and we'll do that with some new, some new polling data. So we have some new polling data that just came out on uh, the Russia-Ukraine war and on what the American public wants to do in response to that. So this is from YouGov. Let me go ahead and throw that graphic up on the screen for you. So this is uh, how much either overwater or underwater these different ideas are. So sanctions are plus 51, plus 51. Send money, plus 43. Send weapons, plus 38. Send troops to NATO. I don't know exactly what they mean by that. Send troops to NATO. I don't know if that means let Ukraine join NATO or send U.S. troops to NATO countries that are already NATO countries. I don't know, but it's plus 31. No fly zone, plus 25. Now we're going to come back to that in a little bit. Ukraine in NATO is plus 20. Cyber attack Russia is zero, so it's basically 50-50. Send soldiers to help but not fight, so like boots on the ground slash training Um, soldiers, Ukrainian soldiers. That's five points underwater. Drones on Russia, thankfully that is 19 points underwater. Airstrike Russia, 33 points underwater. Send soldiers to fight, 35 points underwater. So, look, I mean, the basic takeaway from this is people in the U.S. right now are, there's an appetite for getting more involved than you'd think. Now, the question is, well, how did this come about? How did we get to this point? And, of course, I would submit to you that it's largely the media and the media focus and the lack of a real education on the various issues involved in this conflict. So, Uh, I told you we'd go back to the no-fly zone one. Look, the no-fly zone one is 25 points over water. That means the American people overwhelmingly want a no-fly zone. Here's the problem with the poll. People don't know what a no-fly zone is. People don't know what that entails. So, you know, in, in the minds of average Americans, they might think it's like you press a button and there's a giant, you know, Jedi force field around Ukraine where Russia can't bomb anymore because of the invisible force field or, you know, whatever. You press a button and then scramble all of the uh, technological systems within a Russian plane and they can't hit their targets or whatever. I think people are interpreting a quote-unquote no-fly zone as if it's this very, like, uh, above-board, highbrow, modern form of repelling an attack. And they're not thinking about it looking at what it really is because what it really is is, the U.S. and or NATO actively shoots Russian planes directly out of the sky in Ukraine. So in other words, we do an act of war on Russia, another nuclear-armed country. And then, of course, they react, they retaliate, they start shooting at our people. Maybe Vladimir Putin launches cyber attacks against the U.S. and the Internet goes down for a week. You know, there's, if you do that, you are in a hot war with Russia. There is no, like, tit-for-tat escalation anymore of how it might spiral out of control. That, by definition, is out of control. It's so out of control that the people who are closest to this conflict are the ones who have pumped the brakes on this idea the most. Joe Biden was like, that would be World War III. Jen Psaki was like, we can't do that. That's World War III. Marco Rubio said it, and he's a hawk's hawk. 
He's a neocon. Even he's like, look, I, you know, we can't do it. That's World War III. Boris Johnson, same thing. Like, I don't know what you want me to tell you, dog. We're not in a position where we can do that. That is World War III. So this, this is the problem with doing polls but not educating the public at the same time, not asking the question in a way that portrays all of the information so they can make their mind up in an intelligent way. And you can't help but blame, again, the media for this, first and foremost, because, I mean, when it comes to independent media and new media, credit to them, because every time I've ever heard anybody bring up a no-fly zone, everybody says what that is, which is, that is World War III. That is, we shoot Russian planes out of the sky. But when you watch mainstream media, they don't give you that context. They don't give you that context. They act like a no-fly zone is this very, like, surgical thing where nobody gets hurt and you're just repelling Russian attacks by, without any casualties. So now uh, the other thing I don't like about this poll is um, when they ask about, like, sanct- oh, do you support sanctions? It's plus 51. So it's way above water. Now, if you ask me that question, my reaction is going to be, which sanctions? Like, which sanctions are you talking about? You can't just say, do you support sanctions? That's like saying, do you support government? like, well, what do you mean, do I support government? Are we talking about Medicare and Social Security, or are we talking about bombing Hiroshima and Nagasaki? Those things are a little bit different. So this is the same thing. Do I support sanctions? Well, do I support seizing the offshore bank accounts of all of Putin's billionaire oligarchs? I support not allowing Putin or any of his oligarchs to uh, leave Russian airspace? Do I support taking their yachts? Yes, yes, and yes. Do I support making it so that Babushka can't go to the bank? and can't take any money out, and the entire Russian economy implodes? No, I don't support that at all. I don't want to hurt the civilians. I don't want to go after them at all. If anything, that might make them turn on the West, because then Putin gets to say, don't blame me. Look at what the West is doing to you. They're doing collective punishment. So there, there were no distinctions in this polling, and as a result, people just put the smiley face on the sanctions as if all the sanctions only, you know, only hurt the wealthy in Russia or only hurt the government or top military officials. Well, no, a lot of them hurt regular people. And I think, you know, maybe I'm wrong and maybe I'm naive here, but I think if you actually were to educate people in America who gets hurt by various different sanctions, then they'd be more nuanced. And they'd say, well, I support that sanction, but I don't support that sanction. So I don't like how that question was asked either. Um, The only thing which is, uh, you know, a very, very positive sign is, Actually doing war, like sending U.S. troops to the region, is wildly unpopular. Wildly unpopular. And that cuts across, you know, ideological and partisan lines. Basically, there's no appetite. Even given how bad the situation is, there's no appetite for the U.S. to get directly involved when people know that would be us getting directly involved. Uh, There was even a poll of Republicans that just came out. It was in the Washington Free Beacon. And um, the, the position that was the most popular was sanctions. And the position of, like, let's send U.S. troops there was under 20%. So, and again, that cuts across partisan lines and ide- it cuts through partisan lines and ideological lines. People don't want there to be a hot war. But if you phrase the questions in a way that's kind of misleading, like in this, you can trick people into supporting a hot war, like by asking for a no-fly zone. The other thing is, and again, this goes back to the media, 
20 points over water to put Ukraine in NATO. I, I can't, I have to blame the media when I look at that. I have to blame the media because I don't think your average American knows the role that NATO played in getting us to this point in this conflict. Now, I've changed my view on this NATO issue. I used to think, hey, if we didn't expand NATO in the first place to Russia's border, then maybe none of this would be going on at all. That was my view previously. Now, based on Vladimir Putin's own words and why he says he's doing what he's doing, I've now changed that view, and I think he probably would have done this or something like this, even if NATO never expanded to his border, because half of his speech was about all these other historical grievances he has against Ukraine, where he basically feels like Ukraine's a fake state. It's ours. It should be ours. They're in debt to us. They turned their back on us, and now we're going to... Now we're going to make them fall in line. I also think natural gas has something to do with it. He wants that natural gas in Crimea and in eastern Ukraine and in western Ukraine. So I changed my view on it. But having said that, I still would have never expanded NATO in the first place because even if that gets us 5% closer to peace, that gives us a 10% chance at peace and maybe this doesn't happen, I take it. So the fact that Ukraine and NATO is plus 20% tells me yet again, I don't think the media is doing a good job explaining to people all the various factors that have led us to this point. Because I think most people, given the the history of what went down, um, I think most reasonable people would say, yeah, uh, sorry, Ukraine. Sorry, post-Soviet buffer states. Uh, We're going to not escalate tensions and get us to the brink of war to have you in the alliance. We're just not going to expand. Sorry. So I think most people would have that position if they knew the facts, but they don't know the facts because the media doesn't teach them the facts. So... Yeah, it's, uh, the poll does not have great results, but the questions weren't asked in a very straightforward way, in a way that's educational and informational, which, needed, which is needed because I, said that, I say this all the time about Americans. Um, Americans aren't stupid. In fact, if you ask people policy questions, their instinct is generally like, I want to do the thing that helps me and my neighbor. So they're not stupid, but oftentimes they are ignorant. So they don't know, like, historical stuff. And so if they don't know what a no-fly zone entails, they hear it, it sounds very above the fray. They're going to be like, yeah, that sounds good, I guess, but they don't know what it means. They don't know that that's World War III. So anyway, not the greatest poll, but uh, those are the findings. And we'll get to this later. In fact, this might be the very next segment, but there's been an interesting reaction to, from the American public to how Biden has handled this. And uh, it's actually one of the first things in a long time where he gets positive ratings. Okay, let's move on. So we have some new polling that just came out uh, on Biden and how he's doing. And some surprising stuff in here, man. So let me go ahead and throw that up there. This is from uh, PBS and NPR, and I think it's a Marist poll. Here's a look at some of the numbers. Overall, approval rating jumped to 47%, up eight points from the NPR poll last month. Presidents don't generally see much, if any, bounce out of a State of the Union address. That's not my understanding. I thought they almost all did. Since 1978, there had only been six times when a president saw an approval rating improve four points or more following State of the Union addresses, uh, according to the pollsters. Three of those bounces were for former President Bill Clinton. 
Ukraine handling is up 18 points to 52%. Coronavirus pandemic handling is now up 55%, up 8 points. So now it's up to 55%, which is a bump of 8 points. Economic handling is up 8 points as well to 45%. The National Survey of 1,322 adults was conducted March 1st and 2nd by live callers via mobile phone and landlines. Following the State of the Union address, results were weighted to reflect the demographics of the country, as shown in the U.S. Census 2019 American Community Survey, has a margin of error of plus or minus 3.8 percentage points. Um, so this is, this is a pretty big bump. Now, my understanding was not what they listed there, that, oh, you don't see a bump out of the State of the Union often. I thought you almost always see a bump out of the State of the Union. But if you look at the way they worded it, they said a bump of four points or more. So that tells me it's probably like, Almost every other president got at least a three-point bump coming out of the State of the Union. Now, why is that? Well, it's very simple. When you're forced to, like, you know, go in front of the American people and make your case, well, a lot of people look at that and they go, oh, okay, so maybe he's not as big of a problem as I thought he was. Maybe the problem is the House of Representatives or the Senate or, you know, whatever, fill in the blank, the Supreme Court. So, I mean, it's it's the classic thing. I used to say this all the time about Trump, too. His approval rating would go down when he'd be out of the public eye. But then when he went back in the public eye, it would go up because the con artist needs to be in front of you so he can do the con. Like, the bullshitter needs to be there to bullshit you. If you're not there, then eventually people start thinking, like, huh, is he bullshitting me? But if you're there, if you're constantly there, people are, are going to listen. And so I think that's one of the things that happened here with Biden. Now, look, maybe I'm, oh, man, I really think I'm jaded. I'm... I'm a skeptical person. I, didn't, I hope I don't cross that line into cynical, but I'm a skeptical person. And what I have to say is the speech largely got under my skin. There were aspects of it that were good. Um, you know, I think he did a very populist portion where, when he was talking about the new semiconductor factory and other factories that are being brought to Ohio and Michigan, which is going to be thousands of jobs, which is a wonderful thing. I love that he focused on that. Um, but when I heard him basically list off the different provisions of Build Back Better, and he said, like, we should do this, and we should do that, and we should do elder care, and we should do universal pre-K, and we should do $50 minimum wage, and we should do lower prescription drug prices, so on and so forth, I was getting frustrated because I know that Build Back Better is dead in the water. I know they haven't proposed a single standalone bill for various provisions of Build Back Better, and I know he's not going to break out his executive order pen to pass the things that he can pass on his own. So I looked at it, and I was thinking, this is largely a virtue signal speech. That's what it is. And I genuinely think it's one of those things where if you follow politics long enough, you start to see through the game, and then you start to feel like these are pretty words that a lot of people are going to like, but ultimately these things are dead in the water, and he knows they're dead in the water because he's not going to twist arms for them. He's not going to break out his executive order, and he's not going to propose standalone bills, and Bill Biden isn't going anywhere because Manchin killed it, and he doesn't know how to fight back. So when you look at that, it just frustrates me because it's so brazen, it's so shameless to get up there and, you know, say these, that this is what we need to do, and you know damn well that you're not going to do those things. So that's the thing that frustrated me the most. Um, but the part that a lot of people really, really supported was on Russia and Ukraine. Um, and I spoke to my mom, who's also like a good barometer for what normies, political normies think about stuff like this. And she said that was her favorite portion of the speech. Her favorite portion was on Russia and Ukraine. Um, 
Again, an 18-point bump on that issue alone. And I think that that's a widely held sentiment. And he, he started with the speech. Most people that watch a State of the Union speech only tune in for the first whatever it is, 15, 20 minutes. They turn it off after a while. And so he led with that issue. And, um, you know, apart from the typical Biden stumbles and fumbles and stuff like that, uh, he did do okay on that stuff. And so, I mean, that, that, again, this is a large bump, an eight-point bump to 47%. And by the way, I also think this, this proves another point that we've made on this show, which is as long as Biden's alive and can utter even messed up sentences, he's going to be the 2024 um, Democratic Party choice. He's going to be the establishment's pick because, you know, you got Kamala Harris, you got Pete Buttigieg, Mayor Pete's at like 38% approval rating. Kamala's at like 28% approval rating. You know, Biden, all he had to do was trip over himself and, and say a couple words for like an hour, and he shot right back up in popularity, which shows that, you know, he may, it's, he may have bottomed out because he went through a really rough period there numbers-wise. He may have bottomed out because think about it. If his approval rating bumped up to 47%, and Homeboy didn't even do anything policy-wise. Like, I've been screaming uh, from the top of my lungs about this. For the love of God, sign an executive order taking marijuana off the controlled substances list, thereby legalizing it, sign an executive order eliminating student loan debt, Dog, do anything, do anything policy-wise and then brag about it, and that's going to help you going into the midterms. But the fact of the matter is he didn't even do those things, and just the fact that he got in front of people and talked for a little bit made them go, oh, I guess he's not as bad as I thought he was. 47%, again, this is way above anything Trump was at this point, point in time in office. You know, Biden and Trump were around the same, right around the 40% mark, 39% mark at this point in time in office. And Trump didn't see a bump like this. He didn't. So I still think the midterms are a separate question. I still think the Democrats are uh, in trouble for the midterms. But kind of surprising to see such a surge, particularly on certain 18-point bump on Ukraine, uh, eight points up on coronavirus, eight points up on the economy. It turns out you just had to make an argument. And some people are like, all right, that's somewhat reasonable. I don't know, we'll see. The other thing I think might be contributing to this, and I don't think these are great economic indicators, but I think some people do think they are. Um, just the fact that the unemployment rate is now down, and there was a good jobs report the other day, and since he's been in office, what was it, like 7 million jobs or so have been created. He's pointing at those basic indicators now, and he's like, see, I'm not all that bad. I also think that's probably helping, at the very least, the perception that maybe he's not as bad as, as we thought he was. And you guys know... I was a big defender when he pulled out of Afghanistan. You know, that was, I think, the best thing he did on top of signing a $15 an hour minimum wage executive order for federal employees and federal contractors. And um, then that you started to see the plummet because the media piled on him. But he's, they said he's basically back to pre-Afghanistan withdrawal levels, at least as of right now. But, of course, the final point is this is probably, this is probably temporary. It's only going to last so long, man. The speech is only going to be fresh in people's mind for so long. So I think he's probably going to drop again unless he does something to try to keep it up, like executive orders uh, that are going to help the American people. So I guess we'll see moving forward. But um, there you have it. Uh, you have the State of the Union bump, 
And, you know, I can't imagine if this, if Joe Biden was the Joe Biden of old, like the Joe Biden who absolutely draxed Paul Ryan in the debate, and that was the guy who gave the speech, the State of the Union speech, maybe he'd be above 50%, you know, because this is like, this Biden is a shell of himself. He can barely talk. He barely knows where he is, stumbling and fumbling and bumbling. Um, and even then he got a big bump. I think he would have got an even bigger bump if it was the Biden of old, who was much, much sharper. So there you have it. Um, of course, my, the ultimate position I land on is, for the love of God, actually do stuff to help Americans and earn the higher approval rating. Please, for the love of God, do that. Please. Okay. Next. So John Stewart was interviewed recently. By the way, he has a great show on I think it's Apple TV. A lot of, some of the clips get released on YouTube and stuff and um I think he's gotten sharper since he left the Daily Show. I think his politics have actually gotten better. Um and So he's doing, you know, like a round of media press in order to get the word out about his new show. And we got this news. Jon Stewart on thinking about running for office. Quote, how do you not when you look at who's there? Jon Stewart saying, how do you not? Wow. Jon Stewart says it's impossible not to consider running for office himself when he sees the shitheads who are currently in Congress. Oh, God, how do you not? Stewart told Kara Swisher. In an episode of her New York Times Sway podcast released Thursday when asked if he ever thought about a political campaign. How do you not when you watch all that and you're like, oh, my God, what is this is terrible. The Apple TV Plus problem with John Stewart host said it's sort of like when you get in a car and the one driver's drunk and you're like, did you ever think about taking the wheel? You're like, yeah, I did. Stewart exclaimed. I don't know that I'd have the temperament for it. The 59 year old comedian and former Daily Show host said after Swisher noted the dispositions of former President Trump and Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, it's having the patience, like, how come that person gets to still be here? Make that person leave, Stewart replied. I also, th- I also there's a lot that goes around that, that has nothing to do with passion or care about issues or wanting to help people. That has to do with fundraising and the way the game is played and the lack of perspective on it, said Stewart, a frequent visitor to Capitol Hill, as he's advocated for veterans exposed to burn pits and for 9-11 first responders. So, you know, Crystal made a good point to me about this. So I was like, I don't know, he sounds noncommittal, and he was asked the question, he was just responding to it. And uh, Crystal said, well, but he was retired from TV. He didn't want to do TV anymore. He didn't want to do The Daily Show anymore. It was a constant grind to to do that show. Um, And he left. But why would he come back? to do some sort of a TV show if he left TV and he was tired by the grind. And you can say, well, the schedule is lighter now, et cetera, et cetera. That's true. But the show he's doing is very similar to The Daily Show. I think it's just a little sharper. Um, It's possible the reason he got back into TV is to keep his name relevant, keep his name very public, and use that as a springboard to run for office. You know, it's the equivalent of when, you know, these goofball senators or whatever – release a book before they run for office. 
like they release a book, helps lay out their vision, helps you know try to keep them relevant. It never actually makes them relevant because nobody reads their damn books. But it, this is like a, a more intelligent and more helpful version of that. And so, I mean, it's possible, right? Like, it is possible that the whole point of I'm going to get back into TV, I don't know how long his contract is, but it's sort of like a springboard. And, I mean, his answer is interesting, right? Because he was like, how do you not think about running for office when you look at how broken everything is, when you look at how terrible these people are? Of course I thought about it. That's not an of course answer. You know, like, there are plenty of people who wouldn't think of course. There are plenty of people who look at it and say, I'm not touching it with a 10-foot pole, but he said, of course I thought about it. Of course I thought about it. So is he thinking of running for office? I mean, he very well may be. I don't know. I cannot read his mind. We can only try to read the tea leaves based on his straightforward comments here. So the next question is, well, if you're going to run, what position are you going to run for? Hmm. Now that's fascinating. I don't know, man. Funny enough, when I heard him, the way he answered this question, my gut instinct was that he would run for, like, the Senate. I don't know why I thought that, but I thought that. Um, Crystal thought, no, this is, you know, if he runs, he'd run for president. I mean, you do have the, you know, Trump laid the foundation and showed you're a celebrity, you're a big name, uh, you just throw your hat in the ring. You go out there, you naturally are going to get a lot of press because the media can't help but have a sensationalism bias. So they go to the squeakiest wheel, get the grease, get the most uh, entertainment, get the most, uh, get the most views. And John Stewart is definitely, you know, a hilarious person who knows how to command attention. Imagine him on stage with like Mayor Pete. Like the Mayor Pete doesn't stand a chance in the wit department, in the communication department. You have, like, a robot built in a lab and a guy who's a phenomenal comedian. So I don't know. If he does run, he might actually just jump right to president, right to the big one. And we'll see. But, again, his politics have gotten very, very sharp over the years. I think he's only gotten better since he left The Daily Show. Um, He just released – I just watched one of his things last night. It was on how Redditors expose the stock market. And, man, it was so good. It was so good. Of course, he's talking about the whole GameStop thing. Um, you guys got to check that out because it really, it explains like a complex issue. He boils it down into just its straightforward, simple parts and makes it very digestible and understandable. And that's what he does so well. And that's why, you know, the media landscape was, was worse without him. So I don't know for sure if he's going to run for office. Clearly, he's thought about it. And then my question for you guys is, if he does run, is he going to run for president, for the U.S. Senate, or for something else? You tell me. Okay. Next. The media has been absolutely horrendous in reporting what's going on in Ukraine with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, I actually want to say print outlets have done a a much better job. Now there are, and we'll do a separate segment on this a little bit later today, but there are, the wartime propaganda has gotten through almost 
everywhere. So there are things that are just flat out not true, they're incorrect, or they're lies, and they've been reported on as if it's factual. We gave a number of examples of them um, the other day. And so that's why I want everybody to be skeptical for any, from anything that's on the ground, any like on the ground reporting in the middle of a hot war, suspect at best. If something feels just a little bit fishy, it is fishy. So be skeptical. Understand everything's with a massive grain of salt. Um, but uh, for the most part, print outlets, in my uh, opinion, have done a decent job. But who hasn't done a decent job is all of the usual suspects. You know, CNN, MSNBC, Fox News. Fox News has pivoted now hard right, and they're, you know, they're all in on Vladimir Putin is Hitler, and literally anything can and should be done to him, and uh, us pushing for a bellicose, hawkish, neoconservative, militaristic reaction it has no, no negative consequences. It's not like it's an unstable, erratic dude who has nuclear weapons and, uh, you know, is currently listening to what everybody's saying. No, 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 it's not that. It's we can say whatever we want and get away with it and it's totally fine. That's like the mindset on Fox News. But you know who else is acting like this? MSNBC. Now, these networks have done a terrible job explaining very basic things like what a no-fly zone is. A no-fly zone right now polls very popular in the U.S. Americans want the U.S. to do a no-fly zone in Ukraine. Why? Because nobody explains to the American people, except independent media, new media, hey, a no-fly zone is World War III. That's when we actively shoot down Russian planes, direct military combat between the United States and Russia, two giant nuclear-armed powers. Are you sure that's what you want, given that that's what a no-fly zone is? When you tell the American people that, I'm sure they flip, and they go, no, whoa, whoa, I don't want that. I just wanted a no-fly zone. Well, what's a no-fly zone? They, it sounds like you press a button and create a force field, or you scramble the technology inside a Russian jet so they don't know where to bomb anymore or something. That's not what it is. It is it's an act of war. So the media's done a terrible job getting this stuff through. Um, but here's an even worse example of just how off the rail some of this coverage is. This is Morning Joe, MSNBC, talking about the conflict. And look at how flippant they are with the prospect of potential nuclear war. I spoke yesterday to several senior administration officials in previous administrations, uh, and I was struck uh, by how many of them uh, understood that the United States should not uh, introduce troops to NATO, should not uh, have a no-fly zone because of what that would provoke. Um, but I did hear quiet criticism, uh, something that they said uh, they, they would not say publicly, but quiet criticism uh, that the United States uh, should not recoil every time uh, Vladimir Putin or his foreign minister uh, waves uh, the bloody flag of, of basically nuclear brinkmanship. When we, when we are silent, when we back down, when we capitulate to that, uh, they suggest that we actually make it more likely that Putin sees us as weak uh, and that he's more likely to use nuclear weapons. Uh, and their suggestion is to call his bluff and, 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 and speak about the consequences of nuclear weapons and the consequences for the Russian people and, and to not just, uh, again, be seen to be, be capitulating. I'm curious what you think because, again, we're not dealing with a Soviet Politburo, which in its own way is conservative with a small C. We're dealing with a single man that has more uh, power than 
any Russian leader since, since Stalin, and he seems, like Stalin, to be unbalanced. Just look at this convoy here. This is not the vaunted Russian military that I learned about. Look at the spacing between these vehicles. They are literally telling all the world we're not worried about NATO because we know you won't use your air power. We know that you won't hit a major logistical hub like this. And it also tells us that even despite all this combat power, they haven't solved the big three classes of supply, food, fuel, and ammunition. They really haven't been able to do this. They're not trained. They're not built like the U.S. military. They struggle in this. And so I think just this convoy, this photo is indicative that he thinks he can use those three things, nuclear, cyber, and disinformation, to really put the West on its heels, so that we are somewhat off balance and we won't go that extra step. So I think it's time to call his bluff, but I also think it's time to create a parallel negotiation strategy to work both with the people inside Russia and with the oligarchs. That is a massive contradiction. You can't, quote-unquote, call his bluff, but then also do diplomacy. That's not the way it works. If, if you're calling his bluff and, what, bombing the convoy? That is uh, an act of war, an act of aggression that raises the stakes, raises the tensions, provokes a response. You can't, on the one hand, do that and then turn around and say, yeah, I'm open to talk to you, and we'll see what kind of a thing we could work out. No, the whole point of the talking is so that it doesn't come to bombing and direct military conflict, but conflict between these two nuclear-armed powers. So that, that made absolutely no sense. Now, look at the rest of the arguments that were made there. So at one point, both Morning Joe and this guy say, oh, we should uh, call his bluff. But then Joe, Morning Joe also says, Joe Scarborough says, he's genuinely unbalanced. Wait, 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 that's a contradiction too. You can't say, man, this guy's unbalanced and erratic and Lord only knows what he's going to do. And also we should call his bluff. So if it's a bluff, that presupposes he still has his faculties. That presupposes he's still acting rationally. That presupposes he is balanced, not unbalanced. So how did, how did you not spot the contradiction? And, and Joe Scarborough said it like back to back. He was like, oh, you know, people are saying maybe we should call his bluff. But also, hey, he's kind of like, like Stalin. He's pretty unbalanced. He's not a rational actor. Well, if he's not a rational actor, then it's not a bluff. I, it's unbelievable that these people are on TV talking about complex geopolitics and they discuss it as flippantly as they do. Um, the dumbest part by far is hey, I've heard a lot of quiet criticism in D.C. that the United States should not recoil at the nuclear brinksmanship that's happening. And then Scarborough says, they say we make it more likely that Putin sees us as weak and uses nuclear weapons against us if we back down. So this is the, the quiet criticism on Capitol. There's a reason why nobody's saying that publicly, because it's literally the dumbest thing anybody's ever said in human history. So if we make clear, hey, there's no boots on the ground, and if we make clear we are not going to get into a military confrontation with Russia, if we make that clear, we're actually more at risk of a nuclear strike. doesn't feel in any way, shape, or form threatened by the West, then he would never launch the nukes. In order for him to launch the nukes, he would have to feel like, I'm totally in a corner and there's no off-ramp, there's no way out. But they flip it. They act like, well, actually, if we were to be aggressive and we were to bomb the convoy and we were to go after him, that would make it less likely that he uses nukes. 
So if we do a direct act of war against Russia, that somehow makes nuclear war less likely. No, no, no. What makes nuclear war less likely is to say, in no uncertain terms, military conflict's off the table. We can't risk it. Both of us have more nuclear weapons than we know what to deal with. We know how this spiral out of control and where it leads to. So sorry, we can't do it. We just can't do it. Can't do it. Sorry, Ukraine. There's not going to be a no-fly zone. Sorry, there's going to be no U.S. boots on the ground. Sorry, you're not getting into NATO. All of these things, I feel bad for the people of Ukraine, but all of these things are absolutely necessary to make sure you don't go anywhere near a conversation about nuclear war. But a bunch of idiots are literally claiming the opposite. Like, actually, no, the more aggressive you are, the less likely he is to use nuclear weapons. I mean, it's just, it's a joke. It's a joke. And then you got the other guy basically cutting the U.S. and NATO like, hey, the convoy's just sitting there. I mean, this is Sean Hannity point that we talked about. Why don't we just do World War III and then pretend like we didn't do it? This guy's like, well, look, the convoy's just sitting there. They're taunting the West and saying, you're not strong enough to do it. No, I think it would really be you're not stupid enough to do it because then you are risking World War III. We can't do an act of war entering us into World War III and then get mad and get shocked at some sort of retaliation. And by the way, we would do exactly that. If we launch some sort of attack where we get involved militarily and then there's a response, which there would be, be like, oh, my God, I can't believe you responded. Uh, it's unbelievable. So this is MSNBC saying call his bluff on nuclear war and nuclear brinksmanship. Let me ask you guys a question. Even if there's a 2% chance, a 2% chance of us doing something and that leading to a nuclear war, do you want to take that risk? Or would you rather have the chance, the likelihood, at like 0.0001%? Let me ask you. I know what every rational person out there is saying. I know what every single rational person out there is saying. There's no way you could say, yeah, I'd rather have a 2% chance. You ever played poker before? You ever, uh, you know, had somebody that you're up against has like a 2% chance going to the river card and then they hit it? It's not unheard of. It happens two out of 100 times. So let's not roll the dice. Let's not risk it. But here we are. This is the commentary you hear on MSNBC. And you wonder why some of the polling is like, you know, out of whack and people are, want to overreach in the sanctions. Look, I'm for every sanction imaginable against Putin and the oligarchs, but as soon as you start hurting regular Russian citizens, I'm out, because they didn't do anything wrong. But, you know, it's, we're in a war hysteria mode right now. This is MSNBC calling for raising the stakes for a nuclear war and pretending like that would make us safer. I can't believe anybody listens to these people and takes them seriously. Okay. Let me do one more story and then we'll take a break. So Laura Ingram um, could not help herself in the same way that she uh, bends over backwards to defend the uber wealthy here in the U.S. She now has taken that role on for Russia as well. She's going to simp for the Russian billionaire oligarchs. Let's take a look at what she said. If we could expeditiously freeze every oligarch's luxury assets, would that really stop the suffering of the Ukrainian people that's happening right now? Do we think Putin's going to wake up and say, next week he's going to get up there and just say, you know, that chalet and Gestapo was so important to me. I think, I think I'll call Zelensky and send the troops home. No, 
more importantly, we have to ask, is there a possibility that this could all backfire and make things even worse for Ukraine? Is anyone in the Biden administration even gaming any of this out, you wonder? So let's be real, as satisfying as it may be to see these 400-foot luxury liners padlocked, chasing down oligarchs is like swatting away mosquitoes when a cobra is about to strike your leg. That is not true at all. So she asked the question, hey, is this really going to make it better? My answer is potentially, absolutely. Because, okay, the way Russia works is you have, you know, Putin is the leader, he is the president, and there are a bunch of oligarchs that control various industries, and they have a phenomenal amount of power and wealth, and that power is derived from Vladimir Putin's blessing. And so, but the power works both ways, obviously, because if you have these giant industries that these people run, um, you got to keep them happy too. You have no choice if you're Putin. And so if you squeeze them out, if you seize their various yachts, seize their offshore bank accounts, seize their Italian villas and condos, uh, make it so that they can't fly out of Russia, if you crack down on them because they are part of Putin's inner circle, well, after a while, it's sort of like a divide and conquer thing. Well, you're going to have a split among the oligarchs. You may have some oligarchs that are still loyal to Putin, and they blame the West for everything that's happening here. But you might have others who are like, hey, dog, before you invaded Ukraine, we were kind of chilling over here. We're billionaire oligarchs. We had a sweet deal. We had a sweet gig. We don't have to worry about anything. We don't have to worry about somebody seizing our yachts. And now all of a sudden we do. And that's on you. And so if you get enough of them, to turn on him, well, then some things might start to happen. So now, is it guaranteed to work? No, of course not. But I also think it's a good idea, even if it doesn't squeeze out Putin. I love the idea that we're laying the precedent of, like, cracking down on the obscene amounts of wealth that the oligarchs have. And also, we should start calling U.S. billionaires oligarchs, because it's a very similar thing. And the income and wealth inequality is almost as bad here as it is there. I think there are some stats where it's actually worse here. And so I think that's more what Laura Ingram is concerned about. She's concerned about the precedent that this sets. Wait, 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 wait. We're just going to seize billionaire yachts and houses and bank accounts and things of that nature? Whoa, 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 whoa. What if that, what if that comes here? To which I say, yummy in my tummy. I think that's awesome. Um, well, then she says, is seizing stuff going to make it worse for Ukraine? Absolutely not. Now, I will say... All of these things that I'm describing to go after Putin, the oligarchs, you know, his confidants, the government, the military, that's one thing. As soon as you start doing sanctions that hurt Russian civilians, and by the way, we are doing that, we are, well then I'm out. I I want nothing to do with that because you're doing collective punishment. You're blaming all Russians for the actions of a specific Russian or specific Russians and There's bigotry in that. There's xenophobia in that. That's totally unfair. So now we've turned around and sanctioned a lot of the people who are literally out in the streets getting arrested for uh, protesting the war. By the way, now over 4,000 people in Russia have been arrested for protesting the war. So all these brave people who are on the side of peace, now they get punished 
because they happen to live on the same patch of dirt as Vladimir Putin. So is it possible that sanctions go too far? Absolutely. Have we already passed that line? Absolutely. But, you know, my concern is for innocent people who are bearing the brunt of this. My concern is for those who had nothing to do with it, and they're being cracked down on. My concern is not for Putin and is not for the oligarchs. Uh, Throw the book at them. Do everything under the sun. Uh, Try to do a divide-and-conquer strategy from within the halls of power. So we'll see. We'll see how it works out. I love those sanctions in particular. The EU is getting real tough with those particular sanctions. The U.S. has gone too far. I mean, we shut MasterCard and Visa are now out of Russia. I mean, that affects so many innocent people that have nothing to do with this. A lot of the swift banking sanctions were implemented. Well, Russia immediately switched to the, the Chinese equivalent of that system. You know, there's, you weren't able to use Apple Pay or Google Pay in the subway at Moscow. Why, what did those people have to do with what Putin did? Nothing, and we're doing collective punishment. So, again, it's gone too far, but notice specifically who she's simping for here. It is billionaire oligarchs. She brought up specifically yachts, as if that's the thing she has an issue with. I don't know, man. Seizing the yachts goes too far. No, seizing the yachts is making me hard. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, Lindsey Graham doubles down on an insane statement. And then we have uh, New York Times defends lying wartime propaganda. And later on, we'll get to Andrew Cuomo and how he reemerged. He reemerged from the depths of despair and the black hole to remind you all that he sucks. Anyway, stay right there, guys. We'll be right back.
right, y'all, we are back, we are back. Welcome back. I, uh, I am fighting off a cold, by the way. I don't know if you could tell, because I've loaded myself up with a whole bunch of drugs so that I don't sound like it, but, yeah, Crystal's youngest, um... Gave me a cold. We know it's not COVID because we tested her when she was showing symptoms. But, uh, yeah, my throat is feels like it was sandpapered. It's all dry, shitty. So before I came on air, man, I loaded up. I had vitamin C, vitamin D, an antihistamine. Um, what else did I have? Oh, chloroseptic, the spray that, like, numbs your throat. I had to do, I had to, like, go all in with the various different medicines to uh, make my throat workable to get through the show so I could deliver the news for all of you lovely people. All right, so let's continue. Here we are. We got Lindsey Graham. Let's jump into it. Lindsey Graham, um, you know, came out the other night and basically said, uh, Vladimir Putin needs to be killed. And, I mean, that's a big deal. You're on the brink of World War III. You currently have a hot war with Russia and Ukraine. And a U.S. senator, who by definition has a lot of power, is openly calling for the assassination of another world leader. So you'd be surprised how strong the backlash was, though, because this is something, you know, you get the sense like, U.S. officials do this on a normal Tuesday before brunch, call for world leaders to be assassinated because they think we can do it with impunity and they think it's totally fine, and we've done it in a thousand different countries, like in Iraq, for example. Um, But the backlash is actually strong. And I was actually impressed with how strong it was. Like Laura Ingram came out and said, that was a really stupid thing to say. Ted Cruz was like, that's an exceptionally dumb thing to say. And so... Uh, He's sort of on an island by himself here, but he decided, because he's a moron, to go back on Sean Hannity's show and to double down. Let's take a look. You have a conscience and a soul, and you're around Vladimir Putin. Uh, I don't care by whatever means necessary, stand up and stop this, uh, because innocent people are dying, including kids. Well, thank you for having me. I spoke to the Ukrainian ambassador uh, earlier today. Uh, Your voice is breaking through. Uh, After I listen to your program every night, Putin needs a longer table. Uh, Here's what I would say. I've been a military prosecutor, defense attorney, judge for 30-something years. Uh, I'm going to introduce a resolution next week. I'll give it to you on your show, declaring that Putin is a war criminal. It's clear to me the world would be better off if the Russian people took Putin out tonight. The war in Ukraine would end and Russia would have freedom they don't enjoy today. A steel curtain has descended upon the Russian people. What does that tell me? That Putin is afraid of his own people. Martial law has been virtually declared by Putin. I think the uh, Russian people are not buying what Putin is selling when it comes to the Ukraine. And if the Ukrainian people continue to fight as brave as they are, I think eventually the dam will break in Russia. But I want to say this crystal clear, without apology, without equivocation, the world would be better off if Putin were gone tonight. And the best way to end this war is not American boots on the ground, but for the Russian people to rise up, 
reclaim the honor of their country and take this guy out, Putin, by any means necessary. And if you don't understand that, you don't understand this war and you don't understand the world in which we live. Um, you know, why is that even controversial considering if you cut the head off of snakes, you kill the whole snake? It would probably end the war, wouldn't you think? And if there's somebody that follows Putin, you worry, well, he may be worse, but in the back of that person's mind, he's going to be thinking about what just happened to Putin, wouldn't he? Well, in the 30s, when people were calling for getting rid of Hitler and hoping the German people would stop him, they were considered provocative. Uh, looking back in time, don't you think the world would have been a better place if the German people had stopped Hitler by any means necessary? Don't you think the world would have been a better place if we would stopped the Balkans War before the genocide? I'm here to tell you, without equivocation, without apology, I believe the world would be a better place if the Russian people took Putin out and to the Russian people. Your future is in your hands. It's easy to talk about on television. I know it's hard to do. Martial law, a curtain has descended upon you and your freedom. But please, we need a Russian spring. If the Russian people rose up and took this man down, the war in Ukraine would stop. The Russian people would regain its honor. And if we don't do this sooner rather than later, thousands are going to die. So this is him doubling down on the original comments, but there's also a video of him. He went on Fox and Friends after the initial comment he made, and he reeled it in a little bit, and he argued, uh, Putin needs to be in jail. Which is it? Is it jail, or is it, you know, assassinate him, and I'm not making any apologies, I'm going to say to assassinate him again, which is it? So I don't know what's going on. I don't know who's whispering in his ear behind the scenes, but um, this is a really stupid thing to say. So let's list it. Let's list the reasons why this is a really stupid thing to say. First of all, uh, Vladimir Putin not only has nuclear weapons, he has more nuclear weapons than the United States. So um, a guy who's clearly acting erratically, um, you don't want to prod that guy when he has nuclear weapons. It is dangerous for a sitting U.S. senator to openly call for the assassination of a guy who's already probably kind of unstable. So just from a, a sheer, like, future safety perspective, www.shuddy.com, very simple, right? So it's just dangerous. It's dangerous. Uh, another thing is, Lindsey Graham is calling for a war crime as he decries war crimes. See, this classic, like, American exceptionalism brain rot is, like, all of the we, – we talk all the time about the rules-based international order as if we don't violate all of those rules on a regular basis all the time. We pretend like international law doesn't apply to us. The Geneva Conventions don't apply to us. We do that on a regular basis. And so you can't scold other people for war crimes when we have war criminals throughout our elite class, including Lindsey Graham himself. The guy never met a war he didn't like. When he ran for president and got three votes, by the way, he ran for president and famously said, you don't get out of the Middle East. I forget whether it was over Iraq or Afghanistan, but he was asked, hey, when do you get out? He said, you don't get out. So you permanently illegally occupy foreign countries, by the way, with wars that were based on lies. So in other words, when we do it, it's okay. When we do war crimes, it doesn't count. When you do it, Putin, it counts. This is why people don't take you seriously. They can't take you seriously. 
I mean, you're like the textbook definition of a hypocrite. So he's calling for a war crime as he denounces Putin's war crimes. Um, then the next question, of course, is you got to think it through, man. What happens after Putin is gone? Now, listen, it's, I don't want to, I'm not going to, you know, argue from a narrative here. It's possible it goes either way. Like, it's possible once Putin is gone, um, you know, you have somebody better take his place. You have some semblance of some sort of democratic system come about, and we get a more stable, secure, prosperous country in Russia. That's absolutely possible. But what's also possible is the same thing that happened in Libya when we got rid of Gaddafi, the same thing that happened in Iraq when we got rid of Saddam Hussein. You actually made the situation worse. You further destabilized. You know, there were more problems, more deaths as a result of the strongman being gone. So I don't know which way it's going to go in Russia, and I understand why somebody would have the instinct of, like, we got, we got to get past this guy. Of course I see that perspective, but you also have to think it through. You can't just go based off, like, instincts and emotion. You have to say, well, what's gonna, what happens next? What happens after Putin is gone? The other thing is, what happens if Putin has contingency plans for if he's assassinated? Like, is there somebody waiting in the wings to press that big red button? Because he said, hey, if somebody takes me out, this is what's happening. It's going down. We already have Russian state media that said a number of times, like, what's the point of keeping the world around if Russia is not in it? So we could launch our, our nuclear weapons from our, our nuclear missiles from our submarines, and that'd be, that should be on the table. I mean, really ridiculous, crazy stuff, but it's being discussed. Another reason why this makes no sense is Putin is now able to use the clip of Lindsey Graham calling for his assassination for propaganda reasons. So he could turn around to his public and play the victim and say, look, everybody's saying I'm the bad guy. Look at the Americans. This is what they say to your face. Imagine what they say behind your back. They're openly calling for war crimes and violating the Geneva Conventions. And, you know, they're... They're really upset simply because I'm just trying to denazify Ukraine, simply because I'm trying to liberate the great ethnically Russian Ukrainians in Lugansk and, and Donetsk. So he can use this for propaganda purposes. And then another thing is I can't, like, the fact that you have Sean Hannity and Lindsey Graham feigning concern for civilian deaths is short-circuiting my brain because these are the guys who never said a goddamn word about any of the civilians that we killed over the years. Point me to the last Sean Hannity segment on the genocide in Yemen that we are currently aiding and abetting. We are helping Saudi Arabia commit a genocide in Yemen. Point me to the, the segment on Sean Hannity talking about the women and children, the civilians who are starving and dying in Afghanistan because of our sanctions on Afghanistan. Point me to that segment. Point me to uh, the segment or the commentary from Lindsey Graham about our drone war being illegal and unethical and immoral because 90% of the time we're killing innocent civilians. Point me to that. Point me to their, you know, their concerned statements about, we have to get out of Iraq right now. This is an illegal war. This is an offensive war. The UN didn't approve it. And we're occupying a country, and we killed minimum 200,000 innocent civilians. Can't do it. Can't have blood on my hands like that. These are innocent people. What are we doing? They never say anything. In fact, they supported those wars. So for them to feign concern now is just, God, it drives me crazy. It drives me crazy. And guys, 
notice the, they flip massively. Fox News flipped massively. There was the Tucker line, which was basically like, you know, Putin's a strong man and just defending his country, basically. And a lot of far-right people like Putin's authoritarian streak, but also his anti-gay streak. And so they kind of have defended him in a number of ways. But they did, they did a full 180. And they realized, well, this is untenable and this isn't popular right now. So then they went, like, as hawkish and neoconservative as you can possibly get. I mean, many people just flat out calling for World War III through a no-fly zone. So there's a final point. There's a comparison to Hitler that's made there. And this still, even at this late date, it still gets under my skin. And I'll explain why to you guys. Now, this isn't to say that what Putin's doing isn't imperialism. It isn't an invasion. It absolutely is those things. He is waging war on Ukraine, and Ukraine is a sovereign country. And I told you guys, I flipped my perspective on NATO. Like, I used to think this has everything to do with NATO. Like, it's just about NATO expansion. And, you know, this is uh, Putin. He thinks he's acting defensively because he feels under threat because NATO has encircled him. That's what I used to think. Then I listened to the words out of his own mouth in the speech he gave when he announced the invasion. And he made it clear this is not just about NATO. Is it a, a factor in the conversation? Absolutely, which is why I never would have expanded NATO in the first place to their border. But it's not the whole picture, because he said himself, Ukraine is basically a fake country. The Soviet Union built up Ukraine. We funded you. We supported you. You turned your back on us. And basically now you owe us. And so it's like I have a right to this historical land that I declare is really mine and is really ours. That's classic imperialism. And then also, wow, would you look at that? They just found natural gas, not just in Crimea, but in eastern Ukraine and in western Ukraine, and he's invading all of Ukraine. I think that has something to do with it as well. So don't get it twisted. He is the aggressor, regardless of what you think of NATO expansion. And I'm against it, but he is the aggressor. So you've got to call it what it is. You've got to look at all the factors that led to him doing what he's doing. So I sort of evolved my position on that, but... The fact of the matter is, even given that fact, the comparison to Hitler is way too far. Because at least as of this moment right now, as of this recording, we know Hitler had global domination goals, whereas Vladimir Putin has sphere of influence domination goals. Now, both of them are bad. Both of them are very bad, in fact. One of them is way, way, way worse global domination goals with every intention to carry that out is in order of magnitude worse than sphere of influence domination goals, even though sphere of influence domination goals, that's very, very bad. So now look, is it possible that time will tell in the long run that, hey, you were wrong, Kyle. Maybe Putin does have world domination goals. It's possible. It's possible. But we have no evidence to that conclusion at the moment, none whatsoever. Look, the reason we knew it was the case with Hitler is because he took one place, then he took another place, then he took another place, then he took another place. Then eventually it was like almost all of Europe was taken. And, you know, everybody sort of woke up and realized, oh, okay, this isn't just about getting back to Sudetenland or whatever. No, it was like homeboy wants to have a Nazi world government effectively. Now, a worst case scenario... Uh, for Putin would be he wants to reestablish the former Soviet Union. Now, again, still massively 
condemnation worthy. You should condemn it at the top of your lungs because that requires a lot of bloodshed and a lot of war to get there and a lot of innocent people dying and a lot of domination. So by all means, let's all criticize that until the cows come home. But just don't pretend like that's the exact same thing as world domination because world domination means, hey, direct threat to the United States of America, which happens to be the country that I live in and many of you watching live in. World domination goals mean, hey, dog, he's also he's going for the U.K., He's going for fill in the blank with whatever country because it's literally world domination goals. I don't think he's at that point. I don't think he wants to do that. Um, I think worst case scenario, it's reconstitute the former Soviet Union or the Russian Empire. Um, I think probably more realistic is he wants to pick off whatever semblance of the former Russian Empire he can. Take little bits and pieces wherever he can by making absurd claims based on ethnic status. Like, oh, they're ethnic Russians in this region, therefore it's ours. So... But again, the, co- the comparison to Hitler is hyperbolic because what the logical conclusion, if Putin is Hitler, is what? Immediately deploy all the troops. Do anything and everything to defeat this guy. Get those boots on the ground. Send those American troops. Send troops from every allied country. And look, even maybe press the button, right? Like, on the one hand, no, because then they just launch back and it's the end of civilization. But on the other hand, you feel, well, maybe they'll launch first if he's Hitler. Hitler would have probably launched first if he had those nukes, right? So what do you do? The logic of saying he's Hitler is we must do World War III and we must do it right now. But what a lot of these people want to do is uh, say he's like Hitler and then just disregard the, the logic of it, of like, well, that means World War III right now. Or they say he's like Hitler, except World War III, which is equally as bad because it's like we shouldn't want World War III. So anyway, I think you guys get the point. Um, Lindsey Graham is a war criminal, and he's feigning concern about war crimes. And so I have no respect for that whatsoever. And um, when you're a U.S. senator, you have a, a position of responsibility. And he's not taking that responsibility seriously, and he's making us, it, making us all less safe by running his mouth. All right, next. So the New York Times um, wrote an article that, I mean, kind of defends lying for wartime propaganda. So let me show you the tweet here. Viral stories like the ghost of Kiev, a Ukrainian pilot who supposedly single-handedly shot down several Russian fighter jets, are of questionable veracity. But they're a key part of Ukraine's war plan, experts say, as it tries to keep morale high. So uh, that's an interesting way of saying this is wartime propaganda, but what are you going to do? It's to keep morale high, so it's okay. So let's continue here, then we'll discuss it more. Just days into the Russian invasion of Ukraine, a pilot with a mysterious nickname was quickly becoming the conflict's first wartime hero, named the Ghost of Kiev. The ace fighter had apparently single-handedly shot down several Russian fighter jets. The story was shared by the official Ukraine Twitter account on Sunday in a thrilling montage video set to 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 thumping music showing the fighter swooping through the Ukrainian skies as enemy planes exploded around him. The security service of Ukraine, the country's main security agency, also relayed the tale on its official Telegram channel, which has over 700,000 subscribers. The story of a single pilot pilot's beating the superior Russian Air Force found wide appeal online thanks to the official Ukraine accounts and many others. Videos of the so-called Ghost of Kiev had more than 9.3 million views on Twitter, and the flyer was mentioned in thousands of Facebook groups, reaching up to 717 million followers. 
On YouTube, videos promoting the Ukrainian fighter collected 6.5 million, million views, while TikTok videos with the hash, excuse me, while TikTok videos with the hashtag Ghost of Kiev reached 200 million views. All right, let me let me continue here. They say there was just one problem: the Ghost of Kiev may be a myth. While there are reports of some Russian planes that were destroyed in combat, there is no information linking them to a single Ukrainian pilot. One of the first videos that went viral, which was included in the montage shared by the official Ukraine Twitter account, was a complete was a, a computer rendering from a combat flight simulator originally uploaded by a YouTube user with just 3,000 subscribers. And a photo supposedly confirming the fighter's existence, shared by a former president of Ukraine, Petro Poroshenko, was from a 2019 Twitter post by the Ukrainian Defense Ministry. When the fact-checking website Snopes published an article debunking the video, some social media users pushed back, quote, why can't we just let people believe some things, one Twitter user replied. If the Russians believe it, believe it, it brings fear. If the Ukrainians believe it, it gives them hope. In the information war over the invasion of Ukraine, some of the country's official accounts have pushed stories with questionable veracity, spreading anecdotes, gripping on-the-ground accounts, and even some unverified information that was later proved false in a rapid jumble of fact and myth. So what's interesting about this story is the way in which they discuss it. Because they go on to say a lot of the things that are up, even though we know they're not true, there's been no action taken against them. So like the former president of Ukraine, Poroshenko, he's got some stuff up, uh, I think on the ghost of Kiev and a number of other things that are questionable. And there's no warning. There's no, you know, banner saying something. Obviously, it wasn't pulled down. And the official Twitter account for Ukraine has some stuff up there. That's not true. And it's just sort of they're letting it stay up. Um, and we've covered, I told you guys, there were a number of stories that I saw that I was like, I don't know, man, I'm not touching that because something feels fishy about it. And in the middle of a war, if something feels a little bit fishy, it's because it is. So be skeptical. You don't have to be cynical, but be skeptical. And one of the things, like the Snake Island thing I saw, and I was like, I don't know, man, really? We got a recording of people saying F you to the Russian soldiers, and that was their last words. Well, like, how did we get the recording if that was their last word? Wasn't that stuff blown up where they recorded it? And it just seemed, it seemed too much like a movie. And it was released and people, it went massively viral. And I was like, I don't know, man, something doesn't feel right about that. The Ghost of Keys, same thing, I didn't touch with the 10-foot pole. So I was like, I don't know, something doesn't feel right about that. Even the stories of, like, uh, Zelensky survived three assassination attempts in a, in a couple days or whatever. Even that, I shared, shared it with you guys, but I told you, massive grain of salt, it's very possible this is not true and this is wartime propaganda. And I'm not, understand something, I'm not saying this to only go after the Ukrainians for their wartime propaganda because the entire Russian invasion is based on propaganda. It's based on this absurd idea that everything Vladimir Putin is doing is defensive by definition. Everything he's doing is defensive by definition. Who, me, bro? I'm just going into Ukraine because I want to denazify the country, dog, and because NATO expanded to my border, and so I'm under threat. So I have to do an offensive invasion to stop their invasion. Well, I would, ne I would never have expanded NATO in the first place, but they weren't going to attack you, Vladimir Putin. You have nuclear weapons. They would have had a death wish if they attacked you first. So they weren't actually a threat, even though it could be perceived that their expansion was a threat. 
But his idea of, like, I'm just denazifying the country, that's all wartime propaganda. There, there was a tweet the other day that went viral, because everybody was laughing at it, of, like, 13-year-old Chinese laptops that had, like, stickers on it saying, property of NATO, that they were trying to say, see, Ukraine is working with NATO. Ukraine is secretly in NATO. Like, there's, in the fog of war, there is an endless amount of propaganda, wartime propaganda, to build up narratives for both sides of the fight. And, like here, uh, again, even the, the videos that are coming out now that they say, hey, these are Russian soldiers, and they're expressing regret for even doing the invasion in the first place. They're captured Russian soldiers, and the Ukrainians record them basically saying, look, I'm sorry, I didn't want to do this. We were sort of forced to do this, et cetera, et cetera. Even those, I mean, it violates the Geneva Conventions to post those things in the first place, okay? You can't, like, record prisoners of war. But also, I don't even know if I believe them. Or maybe some of them are real, but many of them could just not be real. Why? Because there's a war going on, and there's pro-Ukrainian propaganda on the Ukraine side and pro-Russian propaganda on the Russian side. And my favorite thing is people who are massively on top of the propaganda for one side, but then for the other side, it's like total pass. I'll believe literally anything the side that I like says. And I've seen it cut both directions. I've seen some lefties who have gone super goofy where it's like, they genuinely believe Putin is like 100% defensive, even though he's the one who invaded the sovereign country. Uh, and I've seen people on the Ukraine side immediately fall for like the Ghost of Kiev stuff and the Snake Island stuff and um, just no critical thinking. Again, guys, rely on your own mind and your own instincts. And if you see something that seems a little fishy, it's probably because it is fishy. And, but again, to get back to the main conversation here, because this is really important, the way they talk about it, because the West is aligning with Ukraine, which, by the way, I, I don't want Ukraine to get invaded, so in a sense, I'm aligning as well, right? Um, the way they talk about it is very, like, matter of fact and very, like, well, they've got to keep morale high. But it's like, hold on, you guys say, you guys say, we have to stop the disinformation, we have to stop the misinformation. If, if you're lying, you know, they want more banning, more deplatforming, more censorship, more regulation. And now all of a sudden, because it's the side of the war that they agree with, they're like, ah, they're just doing it to keep morale high. And this is part of a war. What are you going to do? So then you're admitting you only deploy the quote-unquote fact-checkers and you only deploy the various forms of regulation that you have when you don't agree with the target. You're admitting that. That's what this is. And my response to this isn't, you should objectively crack down on both sides and whenever somebody says something that's not true, take it down. My position is, you got to let it all go. You got to let it all go. And are there going to be plenty of people who are duped by various propaganda things? Of course. But you're never going to live in a propaganda-free world. And any attempt to get rid of the propaganda is going to be a worse problem than the propaganda itself, because then you just have an authoritarian ministry of truth that bans anything that's even slightly fishy, or just bans anything that doesn't fit their own narrative at the ministry of truth. Because there is no perfectly objective, per perfectly unbiased entity that can truly sort through these things and only leave you with the gold star information, you know? So it's crazy how, how they're talking about this. It really is. Um, again, I'll just read the tweet for you guys one more time. Viral stories like the ghost of Kiev, a Ukrainian pilot who supposedly single-handedly shot down several Russian fighter jets, are of questionable veracity. But they're a key of Ukraine's war plan, experts say, as it tries to keep morale high. 
So it's just like, look, it's part of the plan for us to lie because we want to keep morale high. I don't know how to explain to people that you have to care about the truth first and foremost. I don't know how to get that idea through to people. Because if you truly are of the mindset, like, no, what matters is cheering for my side and, quote, unquote, helping my side by any means necessary, well, then I can't get through to you, right? Uh, I, won't, I just won't be able to get through to you. But all I have to say is you can't then turn around and get mad when somebody else takes the same standard that you have, and they apply that standard to themselves too. So like on the Russian side, I'm sure they're also, they feel, many of them feel the same way. Like, hey, look, we're just telling noble lies over here. They're noble lies that get us to the end goal, which we want the most. And by the way, I don't even necessarily agree with what they're saying here. Because this idea of like, well, maybe our fighters are invincible, and like the Ghost of Kiev is just that much better than the Russian fighters. And that can make you overconfident. That can make you cocky. That can make you like feel like this is divine intervention or God's plan. And so you can't lose. And then maybe you act more reckless. And that leads to more Ukrainian soldier deaths. So it's not even necessarily true. Look, again, I don't know how to get it through to you if you don't already agree with it. You have to care about the facts first. You can have your opinions. You can have your beliefs. You can have your own narrative. But it's got to be based on the facts first. You've got to start with those and then give your take on it. And unfortunately, a lot of people are just admitting, I don't care about that. I don't care about that. It does, like, it's not about that to me. It's not about the truth first and foremost. Well, okay. Well, at least we know. At least we know if that's your viewpoint. At least we know. But I'll tell you, that certainly is my point of view. It, it has to be about the facts first. And this is yet another example that shows the limits of quote-unquote fact-checking. This idea that, like, oh, they're just doing the best they can and just trying to remove the most egregious claims or whatever. It's like, no, not really because we have plenty of egregious claims here that weren't touched. That weren't touched because it's nominally on the side that the West agrees with more. Now, if it's an official enemy nation, they'll ban it and they'll rip those, those statements to shreds if it's not true. But for our allies or for us, we effectively get a pass because we think you mean well. And if you mean well, well, then you have a little more leeway to play with the truth and... Um, that's acceptable because your intentions matter more than anything else. Again, for the love of God, please shake that mindset, guys. Care about the facts first, and then you can give your opinion and your take or whatever. But if you're not putting the facts first, I mean, it's, just, it's the slippery slope in the world to having all sorts of idiotic beliefs because you're not basing it on real-world things. And that's a bad road to go down. Okay, next. So Saudi ruler uh, Jamal Khashoggi did an interview, I think, with The Atlantic, and uh, he pulled an O.J. Simpson. Take a look at this. Saudi ruler MBS bizarrely insists Khashoggi wasn't important enough for him to want dead. And even if he was... He would have used more competent assassins. Quote, Khashoggi would not even be among the top 1,000 people on the list. It's got to be professional. Oh, my God. He really pulled a, I didn't do it, but if I did, here's how I would have done it. That is the full O.J. Simpson right there. 
And that is like the guiltiest shit I've ever heard anybody say in my entire life. I didn't do it. But if I did, it would have been way more professional. We wouldn't have, you know, chopped him up using a bone saw, had a body double that barely looks like him at all. Man, astounding. There's another part of the interview that's hilarious. He says something like, I feel like people are violating uh, international law standards and coming after me because you're not assuming I'm innocent until proven guilty. (laughs) So when people point out to him, hey, man, you violated international law. You did, like, war crimes here, killing some innocent reporter. And he's like, actually, the violation of international law was done against me because I'm innocent until proven guilty. (laughs) Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Now, let me show you, at the same time, like a day or two after this story came out, where Homeboy's like, you know, totally making a fool of himself and in so many words admitting, like, of course I did it. I, don't, don't buy it. He's not in the top 1,000. By the way, that shows you he thought about that, right? Like, who is in the top list of people I would murder? Hmm. Let me think about it. And uh, they're doing it. But anyway... Here's what we got a day or two after that interview dropped. Take a look. Axios. Scoops. President Biden's advisors are discussing a possible visit to Saudi Arabia this spring to help repair relations and convince the kingdom to pump more oil, Axios has learned. Wow. So Biden and MBS are not on good terms right now for a variety of reasons. And MBS is... um, has effectively limited the supply to the West and jacked up the prices for oil to the West. And he's doing that to try to squeeze out Biden, squeeze out the Democrats in the midterms because he views the Republicans as more, um, more on his side, more willing to work with him, more willing to give him whatever he wants. And so Biden is now trying to smooth that over. He's going to talk to him. I love that at the same time, we are crying about the rules-based international order, you know, about Russia committing wanton crimes. At the same time, we're punishing them. We're also trying to repair relations with a guy who's doing a genocide in Yemen. I mean, it just, it makes no sense. It shows if you are an official enemy state, we're going to highlight all the worst things about you and what you do. If you're an official ally state, you can get away with anything because you're on our team, so it's okay. And so that's what this is. I mean, we are actively aiding and abetting a genocide in Yemen. Saudi Arabia is carrying it out. And he's like, we got to go make peace. You know, this guy murdered Jamal Khashoggi and no consequences whatsoever. And, in fact, the U.S. is going to beg him now. Hey, man, for the love of God, please help us out with oil a little bit more. It's just, it's hard to take any claim at all of concern for human rights or democracy or being the world police. It's hard to take any of the things we say about official baddie countries seriously when we're snuggling up to one of the worst of the worst countries. Seriously, one of the worst of the worst. So, God, it's so, so hypocritical. It's so annoying. And I have to say, what's my, what's my solution? What would I do? Honestly, I would go to Venezuela and go to Iran, and I would 
try to work out some sort of a deal with them. I never – the problem with U.S. relations with those countries in the first place is the U.S. Iran is not a threat to us. Venezuela is not a threat to us. Iran is not a threat to its neighbors. Venezuela is not a threat to its neighbors. We just don't like their government. We're mad at Iran because in 1979 they threw out our puppet dictator, the Shah, who gave us the cheap oil. That's still why we're angry at them. That's still why we're on bad footing with them on top of them being enemies with Saudi Arabia and Israel. Um, and Venezuela is just, we don't like that it's a, you know, quote-unquote communist regime that's there. And that hurts U.S. business interests, so we're against it. And we're going to levy every sanction under the sun and try to squeeze them out or whatever. Well, now you realize at a moment like this, hey, it'd be nice to have at least a neutral footing with Iran and with Venezuela. And so now you have an opportunity. I would go to them well before I'd go to MBS and go to Saudi Arabia. You know, to the extent you can, as much as possible, try to remain on neutral footing with a lot of countries. This is part of the Kyle Doctrine. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to bend over backwards and defend them, and uh, you don't have to levy the harshest sanctions in the world against them. To the extent you can, have a relatively neutral approach, and then if there are, like, egregious violations, well, then we can revisit that and look at specific actions for those specific things. Like in Saudi Arabia, in Israel, yeah, there are certain things you should probably sanction to put a stop to it. And with what Russia doing to Ukraine, yeah, there are certain things you should probably do to help stop it. But as much as you can, remain on a neutral footing. And um, if we had a neutral relationship with Venezuela, if we had a neutral relationship with Iran, there might be a deal we can make out of this and we wouldn't have to embarrass ourselves and go hat in hand begging to MBS, a genocidal maniac who's also a, a psychopathic uh, liar. So, anyway, there you have it. It's amazing he didn't realize how ridiculous it would sound and how guilty he sounds when he says, I didn't kill him, but if I did... Just stop talking, dude. You're not doing yourself any favors. Andrew Cuomo came out of hiding. He's been gone for about six months. Um, and he is not accepting any of the stuff that went down at the end of his political career. Let me go ahead and share this Hill article with you guys, and we'll talk about it. Former New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, who resigned last year amid multiple accusations of workplace sexual misconduct, spoke out in public about his exit from office for the first time on Sunday and blamed the cancel culture mentality for his decision to leave. While delivering remarks at the God's Battalion of Prayer Church in Brooklyn, Cuomo acknowledged a difficult period the past few months. I resigned as governor. The press roasted me. My colleagues were ridiculed. My brother was fired. It was ugly. It was the first time that I was glad that my father wasn't here so he didn't have to see it, said Cuomo. Addressing the congregation, Cuomo spoke about how politics has become so mean and so extreme, pointing a finger at his own political party. The former governor also directly addressed the allegations that were made against him by multiple female staffers and said the problem was that his behavior had not changed over 40 years despite a new sensitivity among younger generations. In his remarks, he also called cancel culture a new extremism. No one ever told me I made them feel uncomfortable, and I never sensed that I caused any discomfort to anyone. I was trying to do the opposite, but I understand that was my error, Cuomo said adding that he accepted comments that he was old-fashioned and out of touch. So this is, again, 
he keeps doing a contradiction. Hey, man, I'm really sorry, but also this is just a, you know, cancel culture witch hunt. Do you have nothing to apologize, or do you have something to apologize for? It's a cancel culture witch, witch hunt, but also I'm really sorry, and I was out of touch. Now, by the way, this is his dodge. We've gone through all of the claims with a fine-tooth comb. You can go check out the original segment when we got the results of the report. Um, this idea that, look, I'm just Italian, and I'm handsy, and I'm old school, and this is how we did it, and I didn't mean anything by it, et cetera, et cetera. For some of the claims, okay, you could say that's fair. But there were a number of claims that you can't just be like, well, you know, that's just how we used to do it. No, 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 no. I don't remember the specifics, but there were instances of straight up grabbing somebody's ass and shit, um, having people switched in his inner circle to get closer to a woman that he's actively pursuing and touching in ways that cross a line. So it's not like that excuse is not accurate because he did do things that any reasonable person would say, that's not just old school, that's actually really creepy and gross and not okay. All right, now, but look, let's go a step further, because this is actually more important. He should have been out of the governorship in New York because of the decisions he made as governor. Totally separate and apart from the, the Me Too scandal stuff, the guy made a decision that sent COVID-positive patients back into nursing homes and then led to, I don't even know how many deaths, countless deaths. COVID-positive nursing home patients back into the nursing homes, and you think that's going to be okay? You think that's going to work out? That's not based on the science at all. He also tried to protect the nursing homes from any potential lawsuits, any liability stuff. You know, that is being totally corrupt and owned by industry over representing the people. And the list goes on and on. I mean, the guy, one of his top allies, went down on corruption charges. You know, one of his top staffers. He set up a commission to look into political corruption, and then the commission ended up having to look into him and his people, and then he disbanded the commission immediately as soon as they started looking into him. There was a scandal about him not using this, the right materials for a new bridge and trying to cover it up. I mean, that's, that's dangerous. That could be dangerous stuff. The list goes on and on, man. And I haven't even got into, like, Chris Cuomo and CNN and their complicity. I mean, they, were, they had Andrew Cuomo on and portrayed him like an absolute hero, like a star. At the same time, this guy was making horrendous decisions that were leading to the deaths of countless people. They were fluffing him up, boosting his ego. They, were at, they weren't asking real questions. They'd have him on to, to play patty cakes with him. And his brother eventually got fired because he was helping behind the scenes with the defense that Cuomo was playing over all these allegations. The head of CNN at the time, Jeff Zucker, was give, coaching Cuomo on how to do his like, daily COVID press briefings. CNN was acting as a wing for the establishment Democrats and for the Cuomos particularly in New York. So this idea of like, it's just cancel culture. It's not, it's not cancel culture. You did things that were genuinely terrible, genuinely corrupt, led to the deaths of people, and this is called consequences for your actions. Now, again, they ended up bringing him down over the Me Too stuff, but it's like getting Al Capone on tax evasion, you know? Like, it wasn't really the main thing, 
that should have got you kicked out of office, but you stepped down, you got kicked out. So happy days at the end when all is said and done, you know, but God, it's so, this is the classic move now. Everything is cancel culture. Whatever I don't like is cancel culture. There can never be like a legitimate, genuine, sincere criticism that is fair and accurate. And there are consequences for that. No, it's, oh, it's all cancel culture. Oh, it's all triggered little snowflakes and the woke mob. And we're now seeing this excuse being used in the most ridiculous ways possible. I mean, we see this all the time now with the right. They'll say, oh, what are you, triggered? Are you canceling me? It's like, no, I'm not canceling you. I'm fact-checking you because you said something that is absolutely verifiably untrue. Oh, it must be a woke mob's coming after me. No, we're just saying, hey, man, you're wrong, and here are the specifics as to how you're wrong. And they don't, they don't have a real response to it. So anyway, Andrew Cuomo, man, a new extremism. No, you know what extremism is? Extremism is making decisions that lead to grandma dying. That's extremism. Go ahead, COVID-positive patients, get back in there. And by the way, if you die, you're not go- the family's not going to be able to sue because I'm protecting the nursing home. The list goes on and on. He was a charlatan. He was a con man. He was a fraud. He was found out, and now he's got no response, so all he does is, oh, it's cancel culture. By the way, there was another line in the speech where he said, God's not done with me yet. Is he going to run for office again? Is he going to run for office again? He might. He might run for office again. Oh, man. I shudder at the thought that we have to deal with a lot of these terrible people and terrible politicians moving forward for, like, decades to come, whether it's Andrew Cuomo or Mayor Pete or whoever. I mean, this is... I just, I can't, I can't deal with these people. They're such frauds, and it's so obvious. Okay. So Joe Manchin um, was on Chuck Todd's horrendous show that he does a terrible job on. Hold on. Let me start that over. I think I didn't do the right thing with the... My little vape that signifies when the segments start and end. Anyway, so Joe Manchin, um, he was on Chuck Todd's terrible show, and he was asked about, you know, Russia and Ukraine and build back better. And he let the mask slip a little bit here about what he really thinks of change and progress and improving the country. Take a look. You want to see an increase in energy production before you'll sit down with Biden. Let me say the most important thing, and the thing that I'm worried about every day is inflation right now. It's affecting every West Virginian, every American that I know of. has been basically told me the high prices they're paying, they can't, they can't sustain. And it's hurting the people that need it the most, people that are working like the Dickens, trying to make a living. They need help, so inflation is the number one thing. Basically supporting Ukraine and saving freedom and democracy around the world, because it will permeate if we don't stop it. Next of all, we can do all of this, okay? But you've got to get your financial house in order. Um, my grandfather always said, Joe, he said, unmanaged debt will make cowardly decisions out of you. You'll make a cowardly decision. We've got to get that under control. Is this war in Europe um, uh, make it harder to do this deal with the president or easier? I think it makes it more realistic. This is, this is the real world. We keep talking as aspirational things we want to do, whether it's the far left, far right, whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. 
Forget about the aspiration. We're living in a real world. Global climate is global. It's not North American. It's not United States only. It's global. And we have to look at this and what we can do. Our energy that we produce in America is better and cleaner than any place else in the world. So anything that we backfill is going to be better than what they produce. So he's using the crisis to push for more drilling, more natural gas, more oil. And he literally said there, quote, forget about the aspirational. Forget about the aspirational. Now, look, I understand in the short term, in order to prevent gas from going over 5 $6 a gallon, you have to fill that gap that's going to be made, mostly for Europe more so than us, but for everybody because of, you know, Russian oil and gas potentially going away. It's like the one thing they didn't sanction yet, but they might end up doing it, and that will have massive, a massive impact on the market. So I get it. Like, you have to, in the short term, you have to address that, but there has never been a better time to take this crisis and say, I've never seen a better argument for more... Um, more solar, more wind, more, I mean, they're apparently still working on the updated nuclear stuff, which is thorium, not thorium cars, which by the way were bullshit, but, you know, thorium, like nuclear power that's supposed to be quote unquote meltdown proof. I don't know how far along they are in the research and development and how close they are, but look, and even on regular nuclear, I've sort of uh, evolved a little bit myself and I think nuclear power I mean, it, it'll help, especially at a time like right now. And you see all the political instability, whether it's with Russia and Ukraine or with Saudi Arabia. I mean, we don't want to be reliant. No, we don't want anybody to be reliant. But this is a moment where you should be leaning into a Green New Deal, new renewable technology. Like, th- there's never been a better time for it. But instead, he's using the crisis to push in the other direction. And this reminds me of like at the beginning of the pandemic when it started to get really bad and Bernie was still in the race. And I was screaming like, your argument is now, look, everything I warned about is coming to pass. There's never been a time where we needed a single payer Medicare for all system more than right now. We have a pandemic. We have a pandemic. And it turns out like over 300,000 of the COVID deaths are directly attributable to the fact that we don't have a single payer Medicare for all system. There was a report that found that. But the state of affairs wasn't used to make the logical argument. The logical argument being, hey, a health crisis, wouldn't it be lovely to have universal health care in a health crisis? Isn't that the answer? So they didn't really make that argument. And now I don't see many people making the argument of, in the short term, I get it. You got to get oil and gas. And that's why you talk to Iran. You talk to Venezuela. You maybe work something out. You don't want to rely on Saudi Arabia or Russia or whatever. But for the long term now, oh, throw throw money at the issue of renewable and green technology because we also want to be the ones who develop the patents that are in those fields. So, you know, we, the U.S., gets wealthy off of this moving forward. It's an economic opportunity, and he's not using it for that. He's saying the opposite. He's just like drill, baby, drill. And why? Because it turns out, of course, Joe Manchin makes a tremendous amount of money off of dirty energy. I mean, he's a coal baron. And he's got investments all over the place. He gets wealthy the more we use fossil fuels. And so he's using this to say, well, we need to become more energy independent here. By the way, we are, I think, the number one producer of oil and natural gas here in the U.S. Problem is we just export most of it. Isn't that crazy? So you would think, like, okay, we 
get it here and then domestically we use it. No, we export most of it. And that's why when they talk about we need to increase our own production here, they don't tell you that it's overwhelmingly likely that they'll keep exporting that as well. Now, I understand if somebody wants to change that. Yeah, I get that. I'm, I kind of support that. But at the same time, it's, it's a complex thing to untangle because, you know, the way the system works now is obviously very convoluted and very intricate, and you'd have to unwind it. That has other second-order, third-order consequences, so on and so forth. But they're not even telling you that if we were to do more drilling and whatnot, which we're, we might be maxed out at the moment, but if we were to do more, it doesn't even necessarily help here. You know, so anyway, the part that drives me crazy is, oh, now Build Back Better is definitely dead because what's happening in Ukraine should make us more realistic. It should make us, quote, forget about the aspirational. Well, hold on. Realistic is aspirational. Realistic is a universal pre-K system. Realistic is elder care. Realistic is lower prescription drug prices. Realistic is an expanded child tax credit, which, by the way, there's millions of kids that are now in poverty that weren't before because this idiot let them expire. So aspirational is realistic. Realistic is aspirational. He flips it. He makes it seem like realistic is like keep the status quo going and don't you dare think about doing anything new and good. But new and good is absolutely necessary. New and good uh, is both aspirational and realistic. What's not realistic is expecting us to coast on the status quo and not have the total cataclysm and apocalypse, whether it's the climate apocalypse or it's such extreme income and wealth inequality that you genuinely threaten the stability of the entire system. So I just, he's literally arguing to not be aspirational, like just accept no change. Because, and what does he say we should focus on? He says, inflation, Ukraine, and debt. Okay. Well, on inflation, 60% of it is attributable to corporate greed. They're using the fear of inflation to just jack up prices, even ones that aren't impacted by the, the supply chain. Is now, is he going to say that? Is he going to say, we've got to crack down on, the, on these corporations? We have to enforce our antitrust laws and, and break up monopolies. Is he going to say that? No, he's not going to say that. He's not going to say that at all. He's also not going to you know, want to do anything like uh, bring back American manufacturing factory jobs here in the U.S., which would help with the supply chain crisis because we would domestically manufacture more and wouldn't have to import everything. Is he going to say that? Is he going to use this issue to address that? No. So, I don't, like, the stuff that he's even mentioning as a problem, he doesn't even have the solutions for. He doesn't have the right solution for inflation. And on the Ukraine thing, I mean, I don't even know what uh, Manchin's position is on that, but I think he left the door open for a no-fly zone, which shows how deep his knowledge goes on this issue. He's just casually like, maybe World War III. And then the, the debt thing is like, guys, this is always the go-to. The go-to, if you just want to shut everything down, is to whine about the debt. Now, um, Joe Manchin voted for the traditional infrastructure bill, not Build Back Better, the bipartisan infrastructure bill, which was tiny and loaded with corporate pork. That added over $200 billion to the deficit. He didn't say anything about that. He didn't say, I can't vote for it. Sorry, it's putting us too much in the red. He didn't say that. He didn't say that at all. I guarantee you he votes for the next military budget, which is gargantuan. It's bloated. It's beefed up even 5% more than the current thing, and the current thing is a record. He's going to vote for that, and then he's going to pretend like, I don't know what you're talking about. This doesn't conflict with my deficit hawkery and being, you know, a debt monger. 
It absolutely does. He only invokes it when it's programmed to help regular people. That's when he goes like, hey, man, the debt is sort of out of control. So that, means, that means build back better. Universal pre-K, lower prescription drug prices, elder care, child tax credit. You know, the list goes on and on of free college. The list goes on and on of the things that would have helped regular people. He's like, I can't with its debt. And by the way, at the end of this interview, which you didn't see, he goes on to say, Basically, the first thing we should work on is debt, and we should get to it right now. We all agree on it, so let's do that. So in other words, do austerity politics. At the last time, we should be doing austerity politics. Everybody was a fool for trusting this guy to the extent they did. Pramila Jayapal, Rokan, oh, yeah, I'll make a deal. How's that going? So, Biden, you better break out that executive order pen and do some good things because this guy is clearly blocking your entire agenda. And all he's interested in is more fossil fuels and so making the the environmental crisis worse and also making his wallet fatter because that's how he makes his money because he's deeply corrupt, he's a total goon, and he's blocking any progress. Again, he literally argues against being aspirational. In other words, just accept the shitty system as it is. Well, I got news for you, Joe Manchin. That's like the definition of a conservative. Don't change stuff. Don't change stuff. Well, we know your view on it, and this explains why you voted 50 or 60% of the time with Trump, and really where your true political party home is. Okay. Next. Mike Pence is taking some pot shots at Trump. He's subtweeting him. He's barely masking it. Let's take a look here, throw up the tweet. Mike Pence says, elections are about the future. My fellow Republicans, we can only win if we are united around an optimistic vision for the future based on our highest values. We cannot win by fighting yesterday's battles or by relitigating the past. That is a clear hint that he's talking about January 6th and the election, rigged election claims. He says Republicans can only win by offering real lasting solutions to the problems Democrats have created for the American people. Quote, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, let's press on toward the goal. If Republicans come together and focus on the future, we won't just win the next election. We will win a future of freedom for all the American people. So barely masking it, he's like, hey, dog, shut up about the past. No more talk about the past. No more stop the steal nonsense. No more rigged election. No more, oh, January 6th, woe is me. These people are victims. They're being unfairly, uh, you know, pressured by uh, the Democrats and by the courts and by the elites. He's saying, get, get over it, get over it, get over it, get over it. Now, we covered a story recently. The polls show the sentiment of most Republicans and the overwhelming majority of Americans is, hey, Pence is right. I don't want to hear a goddamn word about January 6th. I don't want to hear a goddamn word about, you know, the election was stolen. Nobody's buying that. I mean, Trump's base buys that. Trump's base. But now his base isn't even the entire Republican base. Again, this is what the numbers bear out. Every time Trump talks, he can't go through a speech without saying the election was rigged. Nobody wants to hear that. No, no normies want to hear that. He'll have his hardcore ardent supporters who are like cheering him on and salivating. 
but any normie is super alienated by that language. So Mike Pence is playing to the polls here, so playing to the American people, but also he might be throwing down the gauntlet, man. He might be, he's been going around, giving some speeches, dipping his toe in the water, feeling it out. Um, There's not only a chance he runs, there's a chance he runs even if Trump runs, because he's already been axed as the VP for 2024. That's already a foregone conclusion. He's done so. You know, Trump's, they're already openly talking about, you know, who, who the, his VP will be if he runs again in 2024, which he wants to. He all but admitted it at this point. And Trump's biggest litmus tests are, will you say the election was rigged, and do I have your unending loyalty? That's where he is. That's where he's at. Nothing on policy, nothing on your governing philosophy, strategy. No, it is literally all like me, 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 me. And so I will say you can never underestimate Trump. A lot of people did that and were dead wrong. But he is in the weakest position I've ever seen him in um, to this point, which is so obsessed with January 6th and stop the steal and the uh, rigged election, et cetera, that he can't. He can't do his full populist tap dance that he used to do, which worked in 2016. He didn't really do it in 2020, one of the reasons he lost, and then now he's out there, it's all about him for 2024. He can barely mask it to act like he's, you know, for the people. So I think Pence senses a little bit of weakness, and he's trying to go back to, like, the Ronald Reagan playbook. But I still, I don't know if he's the one, man. I don't know if he's the one to be able to take out Trump. It's still very likely if Trump runs, he will probably be the nominee on the Republican side. But you can't rule out DeSantis. You can't. And you can't rule out Pence, honestly, either. Because what feels like a layup right now, the political inevitability, becomes not that in the blink of an eye. There was a time when Rudy Giuliani in 2008 was leading the Republican primary polls by a mile and a half. And then he imploded. Obviously, John McCain ended up winning it then. But my point is, everybody was convinced it was going to be Giuliani. Oh, America's mayor. He guided us through 9-11. He's a Republican, and, but he's from a Democratic state, which means he could get the crossover votes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Nonsense. Hillary Clinton was viewed as inevitable in 2008, and Obama won the primary. Then Hillary was viewed as inevitable in 2016, and she lost to Trump. So in other words, things that feel inevitable in politics are never actually inevitable. They're not. And so same thing with Trump. Oh, Trump's definitely going to win. It's possible. And at this moment, it's likely, but starting to see some things shifting. Starting to see some things shifting. And Pence is subtweeting Trump here, and this is an issue where Pence actually has almost everybody on his side in the country. So I'm sure Trump will go after him again very soon with some goofy-ass statement, but look, I'm waiting. And boy, would that be a sight to see, wouldn't it, if the, uh, the 2024 primary includes both Trump and Pence. And uh, the things that they could say to each other. Pence's problem, though, like, imagine the debates in that situation. Pence's problem, though, is that he's so scripted as a politician, he can never just keep it real about all the real issues with Trump, et cetera. Um, whereas Trump will just say whatever the hell he wants <laughs> and go vicious, go right for the jugular. So anyway, we're speculating too much now, but you get the point. This is a sign. Pence given all these speeches. He clearly wants to run. Now he's subtweeting Trump, going after Trump kind of clearly. He may even run, even if Trump is in. All right, final story of the day, y'all. 
So the other day, Sean Hannity came out and argued for um, World War III. He was like, hey, there's a Russian convoy. Let's just bomb the convoy. Let's just bomb all of their tanks and all of their vehicles and uh, try to destroy their armament. And, yeah, let's do that. He was so nonchalant about it. He was so casual about it. Everybody was making fun of him for it. Um, Well, now he heard the criticism. He goes out and he doubles down, and he proves even further. I mean, this guy... I've heard some stories about how he really views himself as like an actor or whatever, but it's hard for me to not conclude he's also just a stunningly inept moron. Try to be nice. (laughs) Stunningly inept moron. That's as as nice as I can say it. So let's listen, and then we'll come back and I'll respond. But they're valiantly trying to fight back. And thank goodness they have some of the Javelin missiles they need. They don't have enough. They're, supposedly they're going to get shipments of Stinger missiles. That will be helpful as well. Um, what I don't understand is we've had this convoy, which has really been a focus of concern of mine, and it's a 40-mile-long convoy of Russian troops and tanks and munitions and fuel, and it's just been stuck you can Google it on Google Maps, for crying out loud, and you know exactly where it is. They're about 18 miles away from the capital of Ukraine, Kiev. And what I've been trying to scratch in my, my little head wondering, okay, if they get to Kiev with all that military bite, uh, my prediction is, and you don't have to be a genius to figure this out, is this is going to be a massacre. We can prevent a massacre, and I'll tell you how to do it. It's not that hard. We know exactly where it is. Why aren't they taking out that convoy? Not saying America. Now, there are other countries that could join in privately, secretly. There's something in the, you know, oper- uh, the intelligence world called covert operations with something known as plausible deniability. In other words, you do it, you don't leave your fingerprints, and you deny you did it even though you did it. Uh, that's lying, Kennedy. You're telling us to lie, countries lie all the time. I'm saying in the face of evil, to stop what will be. If, if that convoy, as large as it is, makes it to Kiev, it will be a humanitarian disaster. It will be a massacre. It will go down in history as a massacre. Now that the convoy is stalled and it's sitting there, they're like sitting ducks, and we're not taking out the convoy. I'm not saying we, the United States. Why isn't Europe stepping up and taking out the convoy? They don't have to take credit for it. They can even deny it. But it's an easy military mission from what I can see. And I've talked to commanders. I said, would that be a hard mission? No. With the right, you know, you can do it with drone strikes. You can do it. It's rather simple, actually, they're telling me. Because they're stationary in one spot, and they're out in the open. Now, that's an opportunity to prevent them from getting to Kiev and killing more innocent men, women, and children. Why they're not doing it, I don't know. He literally hasn't thought about the consequences of that. He hasn't thought about the backlash and the retaliation and what that leads to, the snowball effect that that leads to. I mean, guys, stop in World War I. Archduke Franz Ferdinand was assassinated, and 
everybody blinked, and a month later, like, the entire world was at war. We're now, we're now talking about directly attacking, whether it's a different European country or NATO or the U.S., directly attacking a Russian convoy, killing a whole bunch of Russian soldiers, basically. And Sean Hannity hasn't thought for a second about what happens after that. What happens after that? What does Russia do? What do they do? And by the way, I love Trump's idea was like, just blame it on China. They're making like 400 different economic deals with China right now. They know 100% is not China. Any idiot would, like, these guys have nat IQs. But, Sean, the least bad scenario, if we did exactly what he just called for right there, is what? Well, whichever country had the air bases that the planes or drones took off from, well, they get attacked next by Russia. Now, maybe that's a NATO country. Maybe then that then draws in NATO to defend that country. Well, then you have a hot war between NATO and Russia, and that is World War III. You know, what's the... That's like the least bad scenario if we were to do that or Europe were to do that. Um, the U.S., we could experience like ridiculous cyber attacks from Russia that just handicap us, destroy our Internet for weeks, um, destroy our, our infrastructure. You know, there's things that they could do where our infrastructure just doesn't work anymore. What if like every traffic light in the country stops working, for example? What if our ports get clogged? What if there's so many things they could do? What if they immediately cut off all the oil and gas to Europe after we do that, and there hasn't been enough time to work out a deal with whoever, Venezuela, Iran, Saudi Arabia, to, to make up the difference? And then that grinds the entire European economy to a halt. They can't even, you know, fuel their own fighter jets in a hot war with Russia because they cut off the oil. I mean, 60% of Germany's oil and gas comes from Russia. Like, he just hasn't thought about what happens after we do an act of World War III. Well, by definition, we are then in World War III. Now, this isn't in any way, shape, or form to defend what Russia's doing. I mean, Putin's invasion of Ukraine was absolutely an aggressive invasion. It went into a sovereign country. It's imperialism. I think it's not just NATO, which is why Putin is doing what he's doing. I also think he wants the natural gas that's in Ukraine. It's in eastern Ukraine. It's in western Ukraine. It's in Crimea. That's probably why he took Crimea in 2014. They found massive natural gas deposits there in 2012. In 2014, he goes and he takes it. So this is not defending what Putin is doing. I'm totally against what Putin is doing. But you can't just go, nah, why don't we just bomb them then? Why doesn't Europe just bomb them? We could just, the convoy's just sitting there. We could do it. He acts like there would be no response at all. There's no backlash. There's no retaliation. There's no tit for tat. There's no raising the stakes. And even, even a tit for tat response that doesn't, is an attempt not to escalate but just to respond is going to be viewed as an escalation by the West. Like the West bombs Russian soldiers and then it would be nothing to do with cyber attack in response to that, right? You killed our people. All we did was take out your computers. That, I mean, these guys, they're so stupid. I told you, Fox News pivoted hard from like, you know, Putin's a strong man and he's a strong leader and all these things and it's all defensive, it's all about NATO. Now they pivoted to, he's literally Hitler and we can and should do absolutely anything to stop him. And even if that means World War III, well, what are you going to do? It's, World War, it's just World War III. 
He's so stupid. He's so stupid. It's amazing how dumb Sean Hannity is. Look, I believe to an extent the actor thing, but you didn't say a word about second-order consequences, third-order consequences, things that could happen in response to that in your entire rant. You talked about it for over two minutes. He didn't say anything about, like, what could happen next. And, by the way, final point here, but imagine Donald Trump as president watching now Fox News' wall-to-wall hawkishness, wall-to-wall neoconservatism and counter-imperialism, and they're just thirsty for World War III. And if Trump was watching that day in and day out, Lord only knows what he would do if he was president. I mean, he would have gone too far already. I'm sure of it. He already talked about, um, oh, what's happening is a Holocaust. How long are we going to sit there and watch uh, Putin do this in Ukraine? So in other words, he's flat out acting like we got to do something militarily. We have to do it. We have to do it now. Probably because he's listening to this. And by the way, it was after Hannity first called for attacking that convoy that Trump came out and said, we should attack that convoy and pretend it was China. Put like Chinese flags on our planes or whatever and do it. So this is who he's getting policy advice from. This guy, the least thoughtful person on the planet. So, I mean, thank God. I mean, it's not that Biden's handling this well. I think some of the sanctions have gone too far and gone after innocent people in Russia, and they do not deserve that at all. But if it was Trump, I think we'd be in a way worse situation right now. I really do. Because he's been fed a steady diet of this now. And they're just incapable of thinking about it in like a... Like it's chess. Like, you got to think a bunch of moves ahead. He's just like, I don't know, they're bad. Bomb them. Just bomb them. That's, why don't we do that? We can just take them out and say, solve the problem now. He says, like, oh, if so many people are going to die if we don't do it. Way more people will die if we do do it. There's going to be more death, more bloodshed, because it leads to retaliation and then another retaliation. And like I said, that's world war. So, man. U.S. political media and culture is totally broken, and the conversations we're having right now are downright insane. I can't believe I have to come out here and say basic things like starting World War III is bad. All right, guys, we are done. I love you. I'll talk to everybody soon. Have a great rest of your day. Peace. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.